book of Daniel. We're entitling this particular series, Courageous Living in Troubled Times. How many of you feel like you live in troubled times? Amen. Uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses today. We're calling today's uh, message, The New Kids on the Block. And that's not a reference to the 80s boy band, all right? New Kids on the Block from Daniel 1, 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Uh, if you like to follow along with the outline, there's one in your program where you can take notes. In August of 2000, 118 crewmen died when a series of explosions caused the Russian submarine Kursk to sink. 23 of those men survived in an isolated chamber of the sub for several hours after the explosion. One of them was a, a young lieutenant captain, his name was Dmitry Kolnikov, and he wrote a note to his wife while he waited to die. And two words from that note were displayed in a black frame next to his coffin at his funeral service. He wrote, mustn't despair, must not despair. You know, when, when human beings experience terrible things, for instance, the moment when they know they're going to die, it's almost instinctive that they want to send a message of some sort, that they want someone to know their story. You know, just a year after that, that submarine sank, we all remember what happened on September 11th of 2001. Some passengers on United Flight 93, knowing that their hijacked plane would soon crash, use those last moments of their lives to write notes or make calls to those that they loved. And that was true of some of the people in the World Trade Center that day as well. Many years before that, prisoners of the Nazis in a Warsaw ghetto, after seeing their friends and their neighbors and their family members shot or starved to death, used their last breaths to write notes and store them in crevices in the wall. They hoped that somebody besides the Nazis would read the notes and know their story. And so in the, the final moment, when scaffold, the scaffolding of life gets stripped away, all of the, the toys we spend our life chasing, success or reputation or security, wealth, comfort, ease, all of that is meaningless. We are left with what we believe, what we've built our life upon. If that moment were to come for you, and one day it will, what would you write? What's the message that you want to leave behind? What is your story? Well, this morning we are beginning this brand new series called Daniel, courageous living in, in turbulent times. And, you know, it just occurs to me with wars going on in the Ukraine and in the Gaza Strip and with the border crisis here in our own country as we enter into a tumultuous political season here in the U.S., it just seems like the right time to investigate this ancient book. What story will we leave behind amidst the turbulent times in which we live? 
And so why study this book of Daniel? Well, here are just three brief answers to that question. Number one, we study it because Daniel's situation parallels our own. For most of his life, Daniel lived as part of a believing minority in a majority pagan culture. From the time he was a teenager until he died as an old man, he served under a series of pagan kings. He never had the luxury of living in a country surrounded by people who believed as he did. From his story, we will draw many useful principles as we attempt to live for Christ in a world filled with people who do not share our faith. Second reason to look at the book of Daniel is that because it's because Daniel's prophecies may soon be fulfilled. The book is filled with dreams and visions and prophecies about the end of times. And in the weeks to come, we're going to discover some amazing parallels between the words of Daniel and life in the 21st century. And then finally, we studied the book of Daniel because Daniel's God is our God too. And he is still on the throne. And I think this might be the most important lesson from this book. God is in charge, simple and clear. He oversees nations and families and individuals. He administers the past and the present and the future. He watches over good times and bad days, times of happiness and of sorrow, joy and heartache, great victories and shocking defeats. God is in charge. He's in charge when a child is born and he's in charge when death knocks at the door. And so studying this book ought to increase our confidence in the sovereignty of God who makes no mistakes. Now I should mention here that Daniel is perhaps one of the most popular Old Testament books. It's home to some of the most familiar historical accounts in Scripture, those Sunday school tales that those of us that grew up in the church are so familiar with. The book has it all, really. It has history and prophecy and politics and prayer and lions and statues and wild animals and a fiery furnace and, and dreams and visions and a king who thought he was a cow and incredible adventure and amazing escapes and angels and demons, detailed information about ancient history and amazing prophecies about the end of time. Quite an amazing book. Now, I want to just pause here to say something about our journey through the book of Daniel. There's a lot of books written about Daniel. There's a lot of people that you can find on YouTube or on your favorite podcast or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of different opinions and ideas and assumptions about Daniel. And I want to say this to us as we spend time in the book of Daniel. If you find yourself being apprehensive or worried about the future because of some teaching that you've heard or are receiving or that you've read, I want to say this to you. That is not from God. If you are a child of God, he does not want you to be in a place of apprehension or uncertainty or doubt. We must trust that the God of Daniel is still the God today 
The God who Daniel faithfully served is the God that we can faithfully serve and trust in. Now, I think all of us will benefit from pondering uh, the courage of Daniel and his friends. I mentioned we're calling them the, the new kids on the block. Uh, how, how should we live? How should we live in, in a world where believers are outnumbered and often overwhelmed? How should we respond to huge cultural shifts in our nation and the rising tide of persecution around the world? How should we respond? Where is God in the midst of this pagan culture we find ourselves in? What story will we live, leave behind amidst these turbulent times that we live in? How do we proclaim the true message of Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't even believe in the concept of truth? Daniel's story provides a positive model for how we can live courageously for God even in the midst of troubled times. And while the details may differ, we too have a story and a heritage like that of Daniel and his friends. Now, in order to, to place the book firmly in our minds, here are just a few background facts, all right? Daniel lived approximately 400 years after the time of King David, and he lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Now, the book of Daniel covers the period from around 605 B.C. to 530 B.C., and in the beginning, Daniel is a teenager, probably around 15 years old. And when the book comes to a close, he is an old man, 90 years of age. And during his long life, God allowed him to serve under a succession of Babylonian and Persian rulers. From being an imported hostage and slave, he becomes a trusted prime minister and counselor to some of the mightiest rulers in world history. It's an amazing story. Now when the book opens, we find Daniel and his friends are being forcibly taken from their homes in Jerusalem. And they are being deported to Babylon. They literally are becoming the new kids on the block. And there in Babylon, these godly Hebrew teens will undergo an enormous cultural transformation as they are trained to work in a foreign land for a pagan king. Now, there's three main players that take the stage in the opening verses of our text today. First, there is King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. They represent the world system that is hostile to the people of God. Remember that Babylon in the Bible is always, with no exceptions, always a symbol for evil and anti-God paganism. So there's Nebuchadnezzar. And then second, of course, there is Daniel and his three friends, those new kids on the block. And they represent the believers in the world striving to obey God amid much spiritual opposition. And then finally, there is the sovereign Lord who leaves his children in this troubled world. And yet he purposes to bring them safely to glory in the end. In the book of Daniel, he never speaks a word. 
and yet he is the one behind the scenes, orchestrating events, world events even, to bring about his desired ends. Well, as I thought about this passage, it, it seemed to me to be a, really an object lesson on how the world seeks to seduce God's people, the church. And what starts with a, a frontal assault becomes a very subtle attempt at total assimilation. During the, the swirl of circumstances in the book of Daniel, we will focus on these four teenage boys who somehow found the courage to say no to temptation and yes to God. To borrow a, a phrase from Charles Dickens, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. So today I want to answer this question together. How can God's people remain faithful in a world opposed to faith and godly living? How can we do that? We can do that by knowing some important facts. Number one, by knowing that the world seeks to destroy our heritage. Let's begin in verse one of our text. Very first verse of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now it's interesting that this book begins with a total humiliating defeat. The very first verse takes us back to 605 BC as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar surround the capital city of Israel. And now we know from, from ancient history that eventually the king of Babylon had his way and overran the city's defenses. And from that day onward, the temple, the city, all the things that belonged and mattered most fell into the hands of pagan people. This led to that very first deportation. A second one followed in 597 BC. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians attacked for a third and final time, this time utterly destroying Solomon's beautiful, glorious temple and leaving the city in ruins and the walls torn down. Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon in that very first wave of deportees. Now they are far from home. They are separated from all that they've known. As young men, how will these Hebrews worship God without a temple, without sacrifices, and while living surrounded amidst pagan, evil unbelievers? Well, you know, it's not much different than our culture today, is it? Our culture makes a frontal assault on the people of God by seeking to separate us from our heritage and removing us from our own past. And it's important that we know that truth because that truth needs to, leads to a second truth and that is that the world seeks to deconstruct our faith. Deconstruct our faith. Let's look at verses two, uh, verse two here. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar 
took the precious articles from the temple. These are various worship objects made from gold and silver. Not only are they valuable because they're precious metals, but they are meaningful and sacred and holy. And he brought those things back to Babylon with him. He then placed them in the temple of the chief god of Babylon, a god called Bel or Marduk. Taking the worship objects was meant to symbolize Israel's complete defeat. The message was clear. Our God is greater than your God. Our dad can beat up your dad. And by looting the temple, he thought that he had defeated the God of Israel. But there is much more to this than just pagan boasting. Many years earlier, during a period of spiritual decline and rebellion in Israel, the Israelite people had brought the symbols of other gods into their temple. And now God is allowing a pagan king to take his treasures into a pagan temple. Such is God's righteous judgment. There's no principle in the Bible, perhaps, that's so well established as this. What goes around comes around. The Jews had desecrated their own temple through consorting with pagan idols. And now God allows the pagans to come in and do the very same thing. God had warned about this over and over through the prophets. A time was coming. A time was coming. The time is soon at hand, and lo and behold, it happens. Now, from a worldly point of view, it appears that Jehovah God is dead. How else to explain the looting of the dwelling place of the one true God? And that raises an important, crucial question. Can we trust a God who has been defeated? Can you trust God? When all the evidence seems to suggest to you that he is absent. Will you be faithful even when your world is falling apart? Is your God, Jehovah God, greater than your circumstances in this turbulent world we find ourselves in? Now all is not lost. Although the looting of the temple made it seem that the Lord had been defeated. But next we see number three. The world seeks to reconstruct our values. Reconstruct our values. Let's pick it up in verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now, it's helpful for us to know that starting with this verse, everything else in the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. From this point on, Daniel is away from his homeland, from his past, from his heritage, 
from the things that he's known. And as far as we know, he never returned, not even for a visit. We might call this little passage here, verses three through five, operation assimilation, all right? It begins with a selection process aimed at the, the cream of the crop of young Jewish men. The king assigns them to Ashpenaz, his right-hand man. And he makes sure that they get the best education that Babylon can offer. For three years, they are immersed in Babylonian knowledge and culture and history and language and religion. And at the end of that time, they would enter the king's service and be assured of a high-level government position. Now, this is very clever, and also very seductive. Mind control often begins with the young. Nebuchadnezzar called his vice president of human resources, Mr. Ashpenaz, and he gave him a three-step plan for re-educating these sharp young Hebrew teenagers. Step one was a, a full-ride scholarship to Babylonian University, the Ivy League of the ancient world. There they would learn science and, and math and languages and astrology and commerce and history. And then step two was to offer them free food from the king's buffet. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet of the best stuff. I'm sure we can understand this. Even back then, I'm sure they knew that the way to a young man's heart was through his stomach, right? Step three involved changing their names. We'll look at this in just a moment. But it was an effort to influence their self-identity. And so these young men were on the fast track, all right, pursuing an MBA, all right, kind of like being a, given a full-ride scholarship to the Wharton School of Business or being singled out as the boss's right-hand man for special mentoring. That was a pretty sweet deal. It was the kind of break that most guys would jump at. And to be fair, we have to say that Nebuchadnezzar likely didn't think of it as an evil thing. He probably thought he was doing these young men an incredible favor by educating them and shaping their minds in the ways of the world. And Mr. Ashpenaz, he was just doing his job as well. Well, this then leads us into point number four. So we think about the world, and that is that the world seeks to undermine our identity. Undermine our identity. In verse 6, among these, that's those young men, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, although it isn't obvious in the English text, all of these names had special meanings. The Hebrew names that were given to those boys at birth all contained references to the Most High God of Israel. And the new Babylonian names all mention various gods of the Babylonians. And so Daniel, which means God is my judge, becomes Belteshazzar, Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious, becomes Shadrach, 
which means command of Aku, the sun god. Mishael, who is like the Lord? What a great name. Who is like the Lord? He becomes Meshach. Who is what Aku is? And then finally, Azariah, the Lord is my helper. He becomes Abednego, servant of Nebo, another of the Babylonian gods. The original Hebrew names tell us that these four young men must have been raised in God-fearing homes by parents who raised their children to serve the true God. By giving them new names, Ashpenaz meant to obliterate their past. This was nothing less than systematic brainwashing. Nebuchadnezzar, you see, didn't want good Jews working for him. He wanted good Babylonians who happened to have a Jewish background. Now, note that he didn't overtly force them to change their religion. They were allowed to keep their religion. The whole process, though, just made it very easy to forget their religion. They were being weaned away from their past little by little. Soon, they might forget it altogether. Clearly, the goal for these young men was to think and act and speak like the pagans around them. And it might have worked. But for one all-important fact, you can change the outside of a person, but you can't change the heart. Isn't that right? And this would be a good point to just stop here and just to mention to those of you that are parents and grandparents who worry, and rightly so, for your kids about the negative influence of the world around us. I want us to remember that in the end, our job is to plant the seeds of God's truth and then trust God to bring in the harvest. Most of us know that famous verse from Romans 12 too. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. I love the way that uh, J.B. Phillips, a uh, translator, put it. He rendered it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You see, friends, the world will squeeze us. Is that right? We're being squeezed all the time. We can't avoid that. We can't hide from that. We can't bury our heads in the sand. But we don't have to give in to the pressure. So here then is that Babylonian plan to just transform these young men. New home equals isolation. New knowledge equals indoctrination. A new diet equals compromise. New names equal confusion. It's a good plan because it evidently worked with some of the Jewish young people. But there were four, at least, who stood against the tide. This then brings us to our final point. How can God's people remain faithful in a world of opposition? By knowing that the world seeks to destroy our faith and undermining our identity, but, not an important word, but, but the world will not prevail against the church. 
That is the good news. As we come to the end of this opening text, things appear to be hopeless. Here you have four teenagers ready to take on the mightiest king in the world. And it appears that they don't stand a chance. But appearance and reality can often be different. Now we know, hope I'm not giving anything away to anybody, but we know that they survive with their faith intact. Or there wouldn't be a book of Daniel in the Bible. Is that right? How did they do it? They understood that four plus God equals a majority. When you factor Jehovah God into the equation, suddenly, mean old nasty King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look so big anymore. Now, I intentionally passed over a key phrase in verse 2 that I want to think about right at this point. And it's the little phrase, the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered. What happened to Jerusalem was no accident. Now, I'm sure the headline in the next issue of the, of the Babylon Register Guard read, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. Wrong. Wrong. He didn't take it. He didn't conquer it. God gave it to him. And if God had not given it to him, he wouldn't have taken it at all. You know, a while back I came across uh, this little phrase and it seems to kind of fit into the text, into our strange, difficult days that we live in. And it's this statement. Christians should be the calmest people on earth. Christians should be the calmest people on earth. What a, what a thought that is. Friends, we have no right to run around wringing our hands Worrying about, oh no, what's the world coming to? Not when our God is on his throne working out his purposes in this world. The book of Daniel opens with what appears to be a clear triumph of evil over good. And yet God allowed it to happen for his own higher purposes. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. And I'm sure the Jewish people had a lot of trouble believing that. But it was true nonetheless. And so as we ponder this text in its larger set setting, we might ask, what sets apart these four young men from the others? How did they find the strength to survive in that pagan land? I think the answer might be found in the first verse of the next section, which we'll consider next week. But it says this, Daniel resolved. He resolved, or the old King James says, purposed in his heart not to defile himself at the king's table. It all comes down to the heart at the end, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar could control the environment in which they lived. But he could never touch their hearts. And friends, what an insight that is for you and for me. Their bodies were in Babylon, but their hearts were in Jerusalem. They never forgot, not even for one moment, who they were, where they came from, and who they belonged to. Therefore, it didn't matter where they happened to be, or even what names they were called by. The faith 
of their childhood was written on their hearts. And the mightiest man in the world was helpless to do anything about it. So back to the question we asked at the beginning. How can we survive this continual onslaught of the world in our day? The same way Daniel and his friends did. By putting our hearts in the right place. For us, that means that even though our bodies are here in this world, our hearts belong in heaven. And if our hearts are in heaven, then it doesn't matter what happens to us here on this earth because this world can't touch us. God used the attempted seduction of Daniel and his friends to prepare them for far greater work to come. And that is just another example of God's sovereignty at work. God is always 10 steps ahead of us working in ways that we don't always understand. What the Babylonians meant for evil, God meant for good. He put these four young men in a most vulnerable spot because he knew their hearts could stand the test. And he even allowed them to be trained in a pagan school so that they would eventually become leaders in a pagan government. There's an important lesson there for all of us. Israel was defeated, but God was not defeated. God wills that his children survive and thrive even in the most difficult of situations. This is part of what Jesus meant when he said to, the, to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That phrase, gates of hell, refers to the realm of the dead. You know, our world doesn't like to deal with death and, and it's ugly and it's horrible and we try to hide it or ignore it or put it away from our minds. Sometimes, even as Christians, we struggle with this, you know. Many times when our loved ones die, we feel as if the world itself has come to an end or we wonder, maybe secretly or even out loud at times, if God hasn't made some terrible mistake. Or we might even wonder, if, is there a God at all? We must remember that the circumstances of this life are not what God is about. He's about preparing us for the life to come. I, I read a story a while back about a, a boy who lived near the beach and he spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole towns would appear beneath his hands. And one summer, for several days in a row, he was accosted by a group of bullies who would come by and smash his creations there at the beach. Well, finally, he tried an experiment. He placed large rocks and chunks of heavy driftwood at the base of his castles. And then he built sand kingdoms on top of the rocks. And so he writes, when the local tufts appeared and I disappeared, their bare feet suddenly met their match. It's a cute story. You know, many people see the 21st century church in grave peril from a variety of bullies who are trying to kick over our sandcastles. Secularism, 
politics, heresies, perversions, just plain old sin. But friends, may we not forget that the church is built upon a rock over which the gates of hell itself will not prevail. That is a truth that we can hold on to as we navigate the book of Daniel. Sometimes there's going to be some uncertainties. Sometimes I might say some things you don't agree with. Maybe you've heard some other interpretation. That's okay. It's all right. Because at its root, what's important is God's truth. We belong to him. He has a plan for us. And we're a part of that plan. Hold on to that truth amidst the turbulent times that you live in. Let's pray together.